So take your Bibles and open to Romans 14. I almost said 13. 14. Romans 14, starting in verse 1, I'll read. Actually, I was going to go through 12, but really we're only going to get through 8. I was just working on this, and I was like, if I go through 12, it'll go long. If I go to 8, it'll be just right, so we'll stop at 8. But I'll read through verse 12 just for context. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Well, last week again, we closed out Romans 13 by looking at verses 11 and 14. And in this section, Paul exhorts us to godly living based on the redemptive historical moment in which we live. In other words, we are in the last days. Uh, We're in that overlap of the ages. And we're living in light of the imminence of Christ's return. So the soonness, the, the rapidness of his return, based on obviously on God's time, not our timing. And if that's the case, if we're living in the last days, if we're living in this period in which Christ can return at any moment, how ought we then to live? That's what this section talks about. And Paul will argue we need to be awake. Now, I know it's hard, particularly I know some of the guys back there working on pivots all night long or celebrating the wedding and you get a little tired. I was a little tired uh, yesterday and was a little sluggish waking up this morning, but We need to be awake in the Christian life, not asleep. We need to walk as if it's daytime, not at nighttime. And we need to cast off the works of darkness. And then finally, Paul exhorts us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and starve the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. We use the example of don't feed the animals. Well, don't feed the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. And all of this, of course, being yet another outflow of a life of nonconformity to this age as a living sacrifice. Well, from there, I want to now talk about, as we lead into this passage here, the idea of Christian liberty or the issues of Christian liberty, because that's what this section is going to start dealing with. 
It's going to start dealing with issues of liberty, issues of conscience that Christians may differ on. So I want to look a little more broadly, though, because the issues here, obviously, what you see in Romans 14 is whether or not you eat meat, whether or not you eat vegetables, and then whether, you know, what days you observe or don't observe. So Paul is laying out some specific examples of issues of Christian liberty in this passage. But I want to look at the topic a little more broadly first. And one thing that should be painfully obvious if you just look around the church, any church, pick a church. If you look around any church is that Christians can disagree on things. Are you kidding? What? Christians? But we all believe the same Bible. Yeah, but how many different translations do we have of the Bible probably in this room? You know, but but wait, we believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in. Yes, yes, and yes. But we can disagree on things. I know that's a shock. I mean, just the mere number of Protestant denominations alone makes this patently obvious. How many Protestant denominations are there? I don't know. Broadly speaking, you've got your Reformed, you've got your Presbyterians, you've got your Baptists, you've got your Methodists, you've got your Pentecostals, you've got your Lutherans. That's just six. That could probably, and then each of these has probably been split into five or six different versions themselves. You can go on and on and on and on. And we differ because we differ on interpretations of the Bible. The question then becomes why is that? Why do we have differences? Why do we have disagreements? And the answers will vary. We all hail from different walks of life, different countries, different cultures. Even in a church like us, which is primarily homogeneous, you're mostly from this German-Russian background, but even here you could still have differences of opinion. We often interpret the Bible differently over certain issues. Thirdly, we're limited people who have holes in our knowledge, right? I don't know everything. You don't know everything. And because of that, we can make mistakes in our interpretations. And then finally, we all just, bottom line, we struggle with sin, right? We struggle with sin. Now, we believe that God's word, right? The Bible is God's word, and we believe that it's inerrant and infallible. It is a, the rule of faith in life for the, for the Christian, right? So any disagreement that we have is not because the Bible is at fault. It's because of us, right? If we had come to different interpretations, and if we come to disagreements in our Christian life, and we both base our opinions on the Bible, it is not the fault of the Bible. It is our fault. It is something within us. Again, a limitation. Maybe we're dealing with sin. Maybe we're dealing with some tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation. And that's all we've ever known, so that's what we believe. Case in point, I grew up in a Baptist home, and we believed in what, you know, what the dispensationalists believed regarding the rapture, regarding the tribulation, regarding the return of Christ and all these things. I thought that was the only view of the church. And when I heard people with different views, I said, well, you're heretics, because you don't believe what the Bible clearly teaches that. And then you find out, it's like, well, maybe the Bible doesn't clearly teach that as much as I thought it clearly taught it. Because obviously I've changed my mind on that view. So as a result, there are large areas of agreement on essentials of the faith. 
But there are also large disagreements on non-essentials of the faith. So you could get Christians from various walks of life, various denominations. You can all agree that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus became human, that he came, lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he resurrected three days later, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Most Christians will believe that. And the reason most Christians believe that, because if you look at the Apostles' Creed, that's what it says. For one thing, that, that's a pretty broad definition of generic Christianity. But you may have disagreements on who receives baptism, who is allowed to come to the Lord's table, differences on how you interpret the end times, things like that. How even, even salvation, right? You've got your Arminians and you've got your Calvinists in, that, in those two camps, broadly speaking. Now, I'm not saying that these are all non-essential issues, but there are issues that are not essential to the faith, not essential to the gospel. They're not central to the gospel. There's a fancy word for this. It's called adiaphora. If, you're, if you care how that's spelled, it's A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A, adiaphora. It just means disputed things, basically, non-essential things. So when it comes to Christian liberty, there are two things we should understand. First is that we all still struggle with the flesh. We are fallible. We are capable of making mistakes. And we need to extend charity when it comes to different interpretations as long as we don't deny an essential of the gospel, an essential of the faith. And again, it's like, well, what are the essentials? Look at the Apostles' Creed. Look at the Nicene Creed. These are essentials of the faith. Secondly, only God, through his Holy Spirit and his word, can bind our conscience, not the doctrines of men or any such thing. Now, what I mean by that is, what what does Luther say when he's confronted at the Diet of Worms and he's speaking to the nobles and, and the leaders of the church? He says, my conscience is held captive by the word of God, not by councils, not from popes. You guys cannot bind my conscience. Only the word of God can. And that's what we're saying here. Only the word of God can bind your conscience. By that I mean only the word of God can command you to do something or forbid you to do something. Not my traditions, not your traditions. And even, you know, if you look at our confessions of faith that we have here, the three forms of unity in the back of our hymnals, you can look at those and these are great summaries of the Bible but again, we have to understand these are written by men, and it could be there could be errors in it. It could be it could need to be tweaked or whatever. The Bible is our primary rule of faith in life. The secondary standards, the confessions, come under the Bible, and we adhere to the standards insofar as they adhere to the Word of God. Now we believe they are a faithful interpretation and summary of the Word of God, which is why. They have stood the test of time for 500 years. So what you have here on the back of your um, outline is Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20. Again, I had to go to the Westminster because they actually had a chapter on Christian liberty. Our three forms of unity kind of talk about it in various places, but not in one succinct statement here. Now, I'm not going to read through the entire thing, but it's helpful here because it basically teaches four things. So you've got the four paragraphs there. The first is that our Christian liberty is to be rightly understood. So 
the bare essence of what Christian liberty means is not that I am free to do whatever I want. Okay, that's what people think what Christian liberty means. Christian liberty is not I get to do whatever I want. Christian liberty is first and foremost our liberty from sin's curse and condemnation. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from condemnation. We've looked at that in Romans, right? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for the one who is in Jesus Christ. Or Romans 5.1. Having been justified, we are now at peace with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So our liberty from this present evil age and the wrath of God. That's what the first uh, paragraph here says. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, from the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of this free spirit of God and so on and so forth. So that's what our real liberty is. It's liberty from the curse of the law from the having to celebrate the ceremonial law and from uh, the wrath of God. Secondly, kind of what I said a little bit earlier, God alone is Lord of the conscience, not men or their traditions or their commands. Again, what number two there says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and he hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if in matters of faith or worship. So in other words, this is like that Luther statement, right? My conscience is held captive to the word of God. Traditions are not to bind the conscience unless the traditions come are drawn from the Bible. Third, Christian liberty is not liberty to sin. Okay, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, that sounds like duh, but again, there's there are people who think that salvation means I've got the get out of hell free card from Monopoly, right? I can do whatever I want as long as I have this card, and then at the end I just show the card and I'm okay. That's not the Christian life. Again, we've gone through this in Romans six when Paul says, when his imaginary person that he's arguing with says. Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no, that's not, you're not getting it if that's what you think. Then fourthly, Christian liberty is not a license to overthrow the duly ordained and established civil or ecclesiastical authority. So Christian liberty doesn't mean we get to take up our pitchforks or AR-15s or whatever you have at home and and we get to march on the Capitol, and we're liberty, we're, you know, we're free, and we get to overthrow whatever government we don't like, and so on and so forth. That fourth paragraph there, very important. And because the powers which God hath ordained, and the liberty which Christ hath purchased, are not intended by God to destroy, 
but mutually to uphold and preserve one another. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And so on and so forth. So that is what the Westminster teaches as far as Christian liberty. So it is to be understood as a freedom from curse and condemnation. God alone is the Lord of conscience. Liberty does not mean we get to sin freely. And Christian liberty does not mean we get to overthrow church authority or civil authority. Now we'll consider these more as we continue. But now let us look at our passage, Romans 14, 1 through 8. So as we come to this passage uh, this morning, let's consider some things here. First, three things. First, we know that the Roman church was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. That is obvious that it was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. We've seen this all throughout the context as we've been looking at Romans. Paul's dealing with, you know, he says that, uh, you know, the gospel is the righteousness of God for the Jew first and for the, the Greek or the Gentile. How he talks about how the Gentile is a sinner, the Jew is a sinner, and so on and so forth. Second, we know that this reality caused some tensions within the church. And we're going to see some of these here highlighted in this chapter. And third, we know that the Jews were coming out of a system that was highly legalistic with its laws and rituals and restrictions. And the Gentiles were coming out of a largely, you know, some whatever various forms of pagan worship. So they would have their own rituals, their own practices, just as the Jews had their practices. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise that when you see this mixture of Jew and Gentile in the church, each coming from their own cultures, each coming from their own religious practices, that you're going to see some conflict, right? It should just stand the reason that there will be some conflict and tensions and differences of opinion in the church. And really, if you think about it, any church made up of people will have differences of opinion. There will always be some amount of tension over this or that issue. But as we enter Romans 14, 1 through 8, we'll see these issues of Christian liberty looked at from two perspectives. First, in terms of diet, verses 1 through 4, and then in terms of holy days, verses 5 through 8. So now as we look at the first point here, verses 1 through 4, having considered what Paul has just said in Romans 13 and pretty much everything since Romans 12, how are we to settle disputes in the church that, re, that come up over differences of opinion? Because that's going to happen. How do we resolve these issues in the church? Look at Romans 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So there's your principle. That's how you begin to deal with differences in the church. You welcome the one who is weak in faith. Now, if there is one who is weak in faith, what does that imply? If, you, if you're weak in faith, there's also going to be those who are strong in faith. Right. That's kind of what I was looking at. If there is a person who is weak in faith, it implies there's going to be one who is strong in faith. In fact, you can just real briefly, if it's on the same page, you may need to turn a page. If you look at Romans 15, 1. 
we'll get there eventually, but it'll just say, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul is making that distinction. There are those who are strong in the faith, those who are weak in the faith. Now, what does it mean to be weak in faith? <laughs> so we had some you know, so newer Christians, maybe people who are not well instructed in their faith. Now, again, to answer this question, it really you need to it depends on how one interprets faith here. OK, there are two basic ways to interpret faith here, subjectively and objectively. All right. So weak in faith subjectively could mean our faith. Our level of belief and trust in the gospel and Christ and the truths of the Bible. So what we believe, how strong is our faith? That's the subjective one. So if you are weak in faith, then you would be like the disciples, right? When Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. <laughs> if you had just the, the faith the size of a mustard seed, think what you can do, which implies that they had faith that was smaller than a mustard seed. So the weak in faith, the one who doesn't yet believe enough to trust completely that Christ and what he says in his word. Objectively, we are talking of the faith. With, and I emphasize, emphasize the, like with a capital T-H-E, the, emphasizing that definite article. This would be the actual content of our faith, the truths of the gospel. So a person who would be weak in faith objectively would be one who does not yet know all the content of the faith. A new believer, one who has maybe not yet been fully catechized, children in the faith, whether actual children or an adult who is sort of childlike in their faith, things like that. Now, what, which one does Paul mean here? Which one do you think Paul means? Do you think he means weak and I don't have enough faith or weak and I don't know the faith enough? I, I think perhaps both might be in view here. The one who is weak in faith is one who is both isn't trusting enough in the Christ, in Christ or the gospel to let go of certain practices and who doesn't have enough, a firm enough grasp on the truths and the freedom that we have in Christ to let go of those practices. Now, I'm not saying any one of those is wrong. Both answers, you know, you, it could be one or the other or both. Uh, it, you know, there's really, I don't think there's any real wrong answer here, but point about this all is that we are to welcome him. So you welcome the weaker brother. You welcome the one who has a small faith. You welcome the one who doesn't know enough about the faith into your church, into your communion. Or as the Christian Standard Bible says, you know, we're here, or ESV says, not to quarrel over opinions. Christian Standard Bible says, argue about disputed matters. NIV says, without quarreling over disputable matters. But welcome them into the church. There's no prerequisite for knowledge of the faith that one must achieve in order to participate. Right? We don't have a bar that's set for membership that says, well, you need to know all these things, then you can be a member. Right? That the bar for membership in most churches is set fairly low. Okay? By low, I mean you need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You need to believe that Christ died for your sins. You need to believe certain things of the faith, but you don't need to know the difference between predestination. You don't have to be well-versed on predestination. You don't have to have your eschatological views set in place before you can become a member. Okay, You don't have to have a theology degree to become a member of the church. Thank God for that, right? 
But that person isn't to be welcomed only to browbeat him or her into submission. That's what Paul is saying. Don't welcome them to to beat them over the head with your greater knowledge or with your stronger faith. You should believe more. You should know that that's not what the Bible says. And, you know, kind of, you know, you're kind of badgering them with your knowledge and things like that. Again, we all come into the faith at different points in life and from different places, and we all progress differently in the faith, in our knowledge and in our understanding. If it were uniform, it would be wonderful. Unfortunately, it's not uniform, right? People progress and they grow at different paces, and we need to welcome the weaker brother. Now, what were they quarreling over? This is, like I said, Fred's life verse here, verses 2 and 3. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So, so right there, Fred feels vindicated. The weak person eats vegetables. You are weak in the faith if all you do is eat vegetables. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. See, now you're not allowed to despise the weaker brother. Even though he eats, he's the weaker brother because he eats vegetables, you're not supposed to despise him. you got to welcome him. Okay. <laughs> And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Um, Now what we see here is, relating here to dietary restrictions, now when we see this, we automatically think maybe this is a Jewish thing, right? Uh, They had all, you know, it was the Jews who had all of the dietary restrictions. Don't eat this, don't eat that, you can't eat things with cloven feet, you can't eat things that chew the cud, you can't eat pork, whatever. But notice here, the dispute seems to be over some form of vegetarianism, which in my mind might point to the Gentile population of the Roman church coming out of some form of paganism that required only to eat vegetables. Now, it's also possible that some in Rome adopted a vegetarian lifestyle to avoid issues surrounding meat, which may have been associated in pagan rituals. So in other words... It could have been a Jewish person's like, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to eat only vegetables because I don't know where this meat came from. It could have been offered to an idol. Thereby, I might be, you know, I might be sinning against God unknowingly by eating this meat. Um, keep your finger there and flip over to 1 Corinthians 8 because that deals with it a little more directly. Again, the church in Corinth probably very similar to the church in Rome, Corinth and Rome being both metropolitan cities, cosmopolitan cities, very, uh, you know, have everything that a city would have. and would have all the same things you would see in many large cities today. And they too would have had a Jewish Gentile population, many of the Gentiles coming out of a pagan belief system. In fact, in Corinth, you would have had many pagan temples there as well. But in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul here is changing gears in his argument to the letter in Corinth. He says, now concerning food offered to idols. So they had a question. That was the question. It's like, Paul, what about food offered to idols? And Paul's like, okay, I'm going to tell you about that. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So it's like and on one level, 
Meat offered to idols is nothing because the idol is nothing. There's only one God. It is Jehovah, Yahweh, God of, you know, the God of our and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, so weaker Christians, but some through former association with idols, so in other words, pagans coming out of a pagan ritual thing, they eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he's talking here of pagans coming out of some ritual in which this meat was offered to an idol, which they originally believed was a God. So then if they were to eat that meat, it would wound their conscience. They would say, because that's offered to a false God. That's offered to a God that I just came out of that religion. I don't want to eat that meat. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. We're going to see about stumbling blocks later in Romans 14 as well. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, we're going to see something similar to that in Romans 14, but Paul is saying, look, okay, we know that this idol is nothing. We know that food offered to this idol is nothing because the idol is nothing. But if you have a brother who comes out of that religion and he thinks it's something, and so he abstains from eating meat, and then he sees you chowing down on a steak that was offered to an idol, it's going to wound his conscience. So Paul's like, I would rather abstain from eating meat if it means that my brother who is weak in the faith is not going to stumble in his faith. So I read all that because there could be some of that going on here in Rome as well. The, the vegetarians might be pagans coming out of a foreign Religion out of a false religion that offered meat to idols. Thus they avoid meat and eat veg- vegetables only. In verse 2 then, Paul is defining the parties in this dispute. We have some who are the strong who believe we can eat anything, and others the weak who abstain and eat only vegetables. Now Paul's command to them is twofold. To the stronger brother is to not despise the weaker brother. Do not despise them. Do not treat them with contempt. Do not look down on them. Don't be contemptuous with a brother or sister because they're not as, quote-unquote, enlightened as you. Okay? Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 8, right? You may have the knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So don't use that knowledge as a cudgel to beat someone over the head with. Do not look down upon them. To the weaker brother, do not pass judgment on the stronger brother. How dare you eat meat? Don't you know that that was offered to an idol? You are sinning. Don't pass judgment on another brother. This is all too common in Christian circles, right? The one who knows more looks down on his or her brother or sister who has lesser knowledge. 
And the one who is with the weaker conscience is constantly passing judgment on the stronger brother who exercises his or her Christian liberty, seeking then to bind their conscience. Remember, only God can bind the conscience, not your weaker faith, (laughs) right? If you think eating meat is a sin, you can't go up to someone and say, you shouldn't eat meat because that defies the law of God. First, you'd be like, well, where? And second, you'd be like, you're binding my conscience by doing that. Now, the reason for this command we see in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, the weaker brother does not answer to the stronger brother, and vice versa. Who do we answer to? God, Christ, right? Not to you. I don't answer to you. You don't... Now, obviously, in the church, there's an authority structure. But the point is, I don't answer to your conscience. And you don't answer to my conscience. One can almost envision these disputes as devolving in one side calling, calling the other side legalists, and the other side calling the first side antinomians. But the point is here, God is the judge. We are his servants, and we all answer to him, Right? It is not up to you. It is not up to, it, it is, I don't have to answer to everyone's weaker conscience and they don't have to answer to my stronger conscience. We answer to God who is the judge, which is why then we don't despise the weaker brother because he is God's. We don't judge the stronger brother because he is God's. He or she is God's. These disputes in the church over opinions That is, again, remember, things not essential to the faith ought not cause division in the church. The sad reality is far too often they do cause division in the church, and that's the problem. All right, I am going to make an executive decision here, and I'm going to stop here at verse 4. We'll pick up again at verse 8 next time. But just a few minutes, I do want to say one thing is this. Paul, when he's, you you notice the way Paul writes and the way Paul discusses things with people. If it's a matter of the gospel, is Paul going to be this sort of, well, we'll we'll accommodate you? Is he going to be this accommodating? No, no. Because in, in the letter to the Galatians, right, you know, most of Paul's letters start with the greeting, hi, I'm Paul. And I'm I'm writing with Sylvanus, and I've got Timothy with me as well. And we greet you, the saints at such and such church. And we pray for you. We thank God for you. All the wonderful things you're doing. And then he goes on into what he really wants to talk about. In Galatia, it's like Paul to the Galatians, greetings, you fools. (laughs) He goes right into it in the Galatian church. Now, does anybody know why he hammers the Galatian church so much? Right, exactly. They were, they were falling for the Judaizing error. In other words, they were adding to the gospel. It was a gospel issue. And Paul's like, no, you do not mess with the gospel. If you change the gospel, if you add to it, if you subtract from it, even if an angel from heaven comes down and says this to you, this is, you are cursed. You will not change the gospel. 
when it was a, a, a matter central to the gospel, Paul was fierce. He was a fierce defender of the gospel. When it was a matter of issues that are not central to the gospel, Paul was more accommodating. Paul was willing to deal with the weaker brother. Paul was willing to bring them along. And he would even limit his own freedom, his own Christian liberty, to bring along a weaker brother. And I think that is the pattern we need to try to think about and develop as we you know, continue not only through Romans, but as we just live our Christian lives. There are going to be people who don't know as much as we do. There are going to be people who are weaker or stronger in the faith. And they may do something we look at as like, that seems like sin. But we need to you know, resist this urge to look down upon somebody or resist this urge to pass judgment and try to work together in love. And I'm going to break here again, like I said. We'll stop here after verse 4.